Okay, so our scripture text for this morning uh, is from the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter, starting at, at the last verse of uh, chapter 49, uh, and then continuing into chapter, uh, chapter 50. So let's hear the word of the Lord. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. Then continuing in verse 14. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Almighty, eternal, and merciful God, whose word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, open and illuminate our minds that we may purely and perfectly understand your word and that our lives may be conformed according to what we rightly understand, that in nothing we may be displeasing unto you, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. In this morning's Old Testament reading, we find Joseph, the second most powerful man in Egypt. Only Pharaoh was above Joseph. And since Egypt was an ancient superpower, that meant that Joseph was the second most powerful person in the world. Quite impressive, especially considering Joseph's beginnings. He started out as the baby of the family, a smart aleck who antagonized his brothers. Now, Joseph's brothers, much older but not much wiser, 
should have been able to shrug off the juvenile annoyances of their little brother, but they were not able to do so. They plotted to kill him, but opted instead to sell him into slavery. So wait a minute. Let's stop right there. Can you be serious? Joseph's brothers planned to kill him, and instead they sold him into slavery. What kind of a dysfunctional family is that? Now, did you ever, did it ever occur to you to kill your annoying brothers and sisters or or to sell them into slavery? Now, I was the oldest of, of three brothers in my family, and I ruled the household for my own benefit, the way any older brother and sister normally would do. But, you know, it never occurred to me to kill uh, my, my brothers, even though even when they bothered me. And it never even occurred to me to sell them into slavery. But, but this story gets worse. You can read about it in the previous chapters of Genesis. Joseph's brothers pocketed the money from the slave traders and cruelly lied to their father about it. They told their father that Joseph had been killed by a wild animal, and Joseph's father was plunged into a profound grief over the matter. Meanwhile, Joseph was sold to a wealthy Egyptian and was living a pretty good life in the, in the, uh, the man's estate. Now, I'm sure that Joseph missed his family terribly, and he wasn't a free man, but uh, his, his, his owner seemed to be a relatively decent person. His owner's wife, however, developed a crush on Joseph and tried to seduce him. So when Joseph resisted, she accused him of attempted rape, and Joseph was promptly imprisoned. The favorite son of a wealthy farmer escaped murder to be sold as a slave and now was a prison facing charges of attempted rape. Joseph's situation was about as low and about as bad as you can get. Meanwhile, up in the land of Canaan, Joseph's brother Judah left the family, married a foreign unbeliever, and had three sons who were so wicked that God killed them all. Then Judah had sex with one of his daughters-in-law because he thought she was a prostitute. He produced an illegitimate child as a result. What would you call this family? This is beyond dysfunctional. What would you, would you call this family wicked? I mean, would, would, you call, would you call it revolting? I mean, this family certainly is not fit for primetime TV. It's certainly worse than your family and, and mine, isn't it? Well, Joseph rose to prominence by interpreting a dream that vexed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh was so impressed with him that he, he appointed him to be prime minister. The subject of the dream had been an upcoming uh, disastrous famine, and Joseph's urgent task was to prepare Egypt to weather the coming calamity. Well, it was the family, it was the famine which reunited Joseph's family as his brothers came to Egypt seeking food. By that time, there appears to have been some change of heart among them, uh, at least among, uh, 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 at least within Judah. But these country boys in a foreign country were pretty much frightened of the whole matter, and they were especially frightened of this mysterious prime minister. When Joseph eventually revealed himself, revealed his identity to his his brothers, and promised that the, all was free, he had promised, assured them that all had been forgiven, and he provided the best place for, for e- in Egypt for them to live. And their their father provided a measure of protection 
because as long as Jacob was alive, there was nothing er, that Joseph would do to, to, to try to get back at his brothers. But when Jacob died, that protection was removed. And now there was nothing to protect Joseph's brothers from Joseph's anger. And they were exposed there in Egypt to the full power of the Egyptian state and the fury of the brother they had treated so viciously. Well, how about you? Have you ever been treated unfairly? Perhaps you're a younger sibling who was picked on by an older brother or sister, or perhaps misunderstood by your parents, maybe mistreated by older students at school or given a great lower grade than you deserved by a mean teacher, or, or maybe worse, some of you here today perhaps have been passed by for promotion or fired from your job uh, for, for no good reason at all. Perhaps some of you are badly treated by your spouse or perhaps even have endured divorce. You know, in, in this world and the communities in which we live, people experience all kinds of unfair treatment. Uh, it's, it's just uh, people... People are suffering today, um, and we, and if you personally don't identify with some of these things, you know people who do. Uh, and today, elsewhere in in the United States and elsewhere around the world, there are truly horrific situations. People today are being slandered, murdered, raped, kidnapped for no good reason. Slavery is still prevalent here in the 20th century. I was reading recently about how much slavery how much slavery there is, even, even somewhat in this country. I mean, not in the way that it used to be with black people, but uh, particularly women and children who find themselves enslaved in situations. This kind of stuff still goes on today. And so what do you do? What do you do about these things? Do you fight? Do you give in? Do you accept these things as God's will? Do you patiently wait until there is an opportunity to exact vengeance and then get back at those who have tormented you? And where is God in all of this? Is God truly sovereign or are these bitter injustices outside of God's control? And if God is sovereign, how can he be good to allow such atrocities to occur? What about you? Well, let's start with me. Uh, when I feel someone slights me or when someone cuts me off in traffic, I get angry. I, I don't pious, sit there piously thinking, oh, God meant this for some good thing. I, <laughs> my response is to get angry <laughs> about these things. Um, I was fired once, and I, I didn't appreciate the, the process. I didn't like the person who did it or what he did. Um, you know, I, I never plotted to kill or enslave anyone, but my thought life about injustices that are done to me is not particularly holy. And what about you? How do you respond to personal injustices? Now, the center of this chapter is contained in verse 20, where we read, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Joseph's brothers meant to kill him. Instead, they sold him into slavery. Their jealous and greed drove them to commit this terrible crime. They meant to satisfy their anger and to profit in the process, profit from Joseph's plight. But God, at the same, simultaneously, 
meant to save the world. God used Joseph's enslavement in Egypt to mature him, to position him to come to Pharaoh's aid. And you know, this was not a new thing. God had been doing this all through history. Man always seeks to do evil, and God always brings good out of it. Abraham lied about, to Pharaoh about Sarah, his wife, uh, but God enabled Abraham eventually uh, to, rest, uh, to, to, to uh, escape from Egypt and to carry with him a great deal of wealth in the process. The kings of the east stole Lot and his possessions, but God enabled Abraham to rescue Lot and to gain much spoil in the process. Laban tricked Jacob into marrying his older daughter instead of Rachel and created the ridiculously awful family that we're reading about here. But God used those two women to, to lay the foundation of the nation of Israel. We could go on and on. But the supreme example of God's bringing good out of evil is God's promise to, to, to Eve that he would use her, a sinful woman, to bring about the salvation of the whole human race. Most of us have a natural tendency to expect people to treat us well when we treat them well. So we're shocked at the behavior of Joseph's brothers. We're angry at the plundering kings of the East. We're appalled at the raw greed of Laban, and especially the way he treated his daughters. It's just, it's just astonishing that any man would think to do such a thing. It seems so wrong that good should be rewarded by evil. And part of the reason that this, part of the reason this is so disturbing is that we don't think that we behave that way. We think that we're the kinds of people who always reward good, good, good things with other good things. We don't conceive of ourselves uh, as ha- having evil intentions um, I- I- as part of our own makeup. But, you know, it should not shock us that these kinds of things happen. What truly is shocking is that, is, is that, any, is that uh, there is any good in the human race at all. For example, that Adam and Eve believed the snake instead of the God who created and provided for them. Think about that. How dumb can you get? And for, for, furthermore, how evil can you get to believe a snake instead of believing God? How well is that snake going to provide for you? How well will he love you? Is it even a little bit credible that God was selfishly withholding good things from Adam and Eve after all that he had done for them? Adam and Eve committed a stupid, evil act, and that choice of rebellion locked sin into human nature forever. And ever since then, all human beings routinely commit stupid, evil acts. And, and that's why we see good being rewarded with evil. But the thing is, that it's a, so, so, so when we consider that, it's surprising that good things ever happen at all in this world. And when we say that human beings routinely commit stupid, evil acts, you know, that includes us too. You know, lots of, we don't like to admit it, we don't like to think about it, but it's true of us as well. Most of you here this morning have not committed sins which you, com, uh, which you would judge to be terribly wicked. And by the way, you know, we, we have that, that ranking of sk- sins, and we, um, all of us do this. All of us put at the bottom of the scale the, the, the sins which uh, we are prone to commit. <laughs> and so we think that we're, we're pretty good people, um, 
But at, any sin is at root a determination that you know better than God, and, you, and it is a refusal to do what he commands. So God commands us to love our enemies. Well, what do you think? How are you doing with that? Um, God commands sexual purity. Well, who manages that? Who, who can manage that very well in our society? Look, Martin Luther couldn't avoid lusting even in a monastic cell. And so, I mean, it, it's hard. It, it's a challenge for us human beings. What do you do on Sunday? God calls us to keep Sunday holy. And it's tempting to do a whole lot of things that we probably don't need to do. Children, how much do you help your parents around the house? And adults, how much attention do you give to your aging parents? Now, the point of all this, I bring up these things not to, to shame you or make you feel guilty. That's not at all the, the, the point. I, I struggle with these things, too. The point of bringing these things up is to make us aware of the fact that, you know, there isn't at root much difference between us and Joseph's brothers. They did things which we don't think we would do. Perhaps we wouldn't, but who knows. However, that root, that root of thinking, I know what's best, and I'm going to do what's best, is what drove them to their behaviors, and it's what motivates us as well. The point of, of saying these things is to highlight the stupidity and evil of sin. Look, do you really think that it's better to hate your bad boss than to pray for him? you think it's better to give your spouse the cold shoulder than to love him even when he's grouchy? Children, do you, you really think that it's better to play video games with your friends than to help dad mow the lawn or help around the house um, or help mom with the dishes? Um, why, why would you honor, why would, wouldn't you honor your parents by spending some extra time with them? It can be hard to worship and then refrain from unnecessary activities on Sunday. Um, uh, and I, I understand that, and sometimes there are generally, general nece- gen- genuine necessities which you know, cause us to do things on Sunday that we might not otherwise do. Um, but let, let me speak for myself. Uh, on most Sundays, I get the idea to do this, that, and the other thing, which probably are not the, the ideal things for me to do on Sunday, but they seem good to me. So how do I evaluate this? Um, who knows best, me or God? Now, is that a hard question? But, you know, it seems hard, doesn't it? It seems like I know what's best for me. And so, and I often tend to act on what's best for me, even though God's word might point me in another direction. So why is this? Why don't we easily, cheerfully, consistently do what God commands? Because ever since Adam and Eve believed the serpent, sin has been locked into human nature. Sin doesn't make sense. Rebellion against our omnipotent, all-loving God is really, really stupid. We don't sin because we objectively weigh the evidence. We evaluate different opportunities and possibilities and choose the best one. No, the best one is always to do what God wants us to do. We sin because we're propelled into it by our sin nature. All of us, every human being ever born, is just like these sinful characters in Genesis. And although we would like to deny it, our families are a lot like that too. But 
But look at you. In spite of all this, look around. Look at yourselves. God has given most of you here this morning adequate food and shelter. I'd say more than adequate. Most of us, compared to the rest of the world, uh, have fairly luxurious food and shelter. We have a, you know, a, a, a pretty nice place to live, and most of us can choose from a selection of, of really uh, amazing food items uh, at, at most of our meals. We live in a wealthy society. Even those of us who are not wealthy benefit from the wealth around us. Most of us here today have jobs that pay the bills. We have astonishingly good health care. Our children have access to some of the best education ever produced by mankind. <laughs> what did you do to deserve this? Not much. And even though many of your choices are sinful, God has brought you all of these good things. He's given you these good things which you enjoy. And this is who God is. This is what God does. Joseph knew that he did not become the ruler of Egypt because of his intelligence or hard work. Joseph became ruler of Egypt because his brother sold him into slavery and God used that act to send Joseph into Pharaoh's palace. Joseph knew that his God is a God who turns evil into good. Joseph's brothers did not know this. They thought that God would crush evil. And they thought that Joseph was like him. They knew that what they did to Joseph was horrible. They knew that they deserved a horrible punishment. They were afraid of God. They were terrified of Joseph. Joseph's brothers had come a long way from the place where they wanted to get rid of him and make a profit in the process. They saw their selfishness. They repented of their evil acts, but they fundamentally misunderstood God. <laughs> they thought that God was a harsh master who would execute swift judgment on the guilty. They had yet to learn the grace and patience of God. Joseph knew this. And Joseph's brothers learned it through his gracious response. Over and over, a million times over, God would bring good out of evil. He would use sinful men and their sinful acts to build a holy nation and show the whole world his glory. Subsequent to this story that we read this morning, God would use deeply flawed men such as Moses, Samson, and David, women such as Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba to care for his people, display his glory. <laughs> the book of Genesis reveals the ways of God, and God shows himself faithful for thousands of years. And finally, at the end of the ages, God brought the greatest good out of the greatest evil. Wouldn't any sane person agree that only God could do what Jesus did? Wouldn't any sane person know that it is certifiably crazy to try to kill God? What a monumental evil to kill a perfectly innocent man. God in the flesh, yet through this foul deed, God saved the world, including you. God brings good out of evil, and this leads us to several conclusions for our personal walk with God. First, first conclusion is that we must not fret over evil. We must not commit evil acts. We should oppose evil acts but we must not fret over evil. Do what you must and get on with your life. God will deal with evil according to his wisdom. Work to end human trafficking. Speak out against abortion. Promote wise use of creation. Do what you need to do. 
do the things which will be good for you and for your community, and then go to sleep. Lay down and rest and let God do his work. God will do many good things. God will bring good out of the evil things that happen among us. Scripture says the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Do not fret over evil. God will end evil in his time, and he will bring some good out of it. Do not act as though you know more than God. You know, God could end evil instantly. He could do it fast. He could do it quicker than he might otherwise. Um, And that's what we would all want. It's a normal thing to want. It's what I want. (laughs) Apparently, God is wiser than I am. God has a plan that's different than mine. Um, But I'm tempted to think that I know better than God, aren't I? God... Don't act as though you know more than God. And that applies on a personal level. When you're cut off in traffic, when your boyfriend or girlfriend misuses you, when you get, don't get the promotion you deserve or the job you want. Uh, th- these are undoubtedly unjust acts. But don't fret. God will bring good out of evil. There is nothing good about the kidnapping, enslavement, accusation, and ju- unjust imprisonment of Joseph. But God brought good out of all of this in Joseph's life. And God will bring good out of the evil that befalls you. So be patient. Endure suffering. Wait for God to reveal his glorious plan for you. Second, do not fret over your own evil. Now, don't misunderstand me. Sin is wrong and destructive. You must confess your sin to God, repent of it. Perhaps you need to change some of your habits or circumstances in order to avoid repeat performances. But having done those things, you must not fret over your own sin. God is in control. God paid for your sin on the cross. God forgives you when you confess your sin to him. When you confess your sin to God, God forgives you. And that's it. It's over. and, and, And that means it's time to stop dwelling on it not to fret on it. Scripture says that God puts your sin away from him as far as the east is from the west. When you believed in Jesus, your sin was fully paid up forever. Paul says, without qualification, (laughs) there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. That means zero. That means that when our sin is forgiven, it's over. And so there's, it's, it's, not only is it pointless, it's, it's wrong and it's destructive to fret over your own sin. Repent of your sin. Confess it. Turn from it. Maybe change your circumstances and then move on. Re- rejoicing in the knowledge that, it's, it, that God has put your sin behind you and he won't hold it against you anymore. Now how in the world could God do this? How could God not condemn you for your sin? It's because God has already done all that needed to be done. God has already delivered the condemnation for your sin. In Jesus, when Christ hung on the cross, that is the condemnation for your sin. That is the punishment that your sin deserved. And it's over. It's over. It's done. <laughs> and so it, there, nothing exists anymore. God delivered the full punishment for all sins, past, present, and future. And if God does not condemn you, you must not condemn yourself. Do you know more than God? 
Are you better than God? Are you more holy than God? If God does not condemn you, you must not condemn yourself. Now, sometimes there are consequences to sin, and they can be worrisome. But remember what we've learned tonight. God brings evil out of good. Or God brings good out of evil. (laughs) And third, third, forgive those who mistreat you. Now, this is no call to deny or minimize evil. Joseph did not do that. Joseph recognized that what his brothers did was, was an awful thing. He didn't excuse his brothers or pretend <coughs> that their treatment was, was anything worse, anything better than, than, than terrible. Nor am I calling you to trust those who have harmed you. <coughs> Sometimes people conceive forgiveness as uh, equivalent to naivete. In the same breath where he calls us to be as harmless as doves, Jesus calls us to be as shrewd as serpents. You should steer clear of dangerous and hostile people, but you should forgive them when they do hurt you. What if they don't apologize or repent? Well, there can't be a restoration of a relationship without repentance, but you can forgive the offender. The happy ending of this story is possible because Joseph's brothers did repent, but you can forgive offenders prior to their repentance, and that is because forgiving other people is a matter between you and God, not between you and them. You can forgive others not because they repent to you, but because you have been forgiven by God. Your crimes against God are far worse than anything others have done to you, and God in Christ forgave you those heinous crimes. It's not so much a matter of gratitude, although you would be a monster not to be grateful for what Christ did for you, but it's, it's a matter of justice. Since God forgave your terrible sins, it is just for you to forgive the smaller sins of others commit against you. Even more, it's a matter of nature. Our God is a forgiving God. God's patience is immense. He's compassionate. God is a merciful God, a forgiving God. It takes very little for God to forgive us. All we need to do is ask. God loves to forgive, and he does so almost endlessly. This is who God is, and that is who we are, God's children. We are forgiving people. That's our nature. We're the kinds of people who are compassionate and merciful and forgiving. Through all of his suffering that Joseph experienced, <coughs> the compassion, the, well, through all of his suffering, Joseph experienced the compassion and the forgiveness of God. And in the process, Joseph became like God in this regard. And as we read the story, there is no indication that Joseph struggled to forgive his brothers or that he required a long period of preparation to receive them. Perhaps he did, and it's just not recorded. <laughs> but what is presented to us is a man transformed by grace who is able to be gracious to his former enemies. And that's who we are, those of us who believe in Jesus. We've been transformed by grace. That is our true nature. Now, sin sin still resides in us, and sin would tempt us to revert to old habits of hatred and vengeance. But we are people of grace, and we forgive. You should forgive those who mistreat you because it is your nature to do so. Now, you may be thinking, well, wait, I'm not sure it's my nature. Yeah, it is your nature. I don't know you, 
but I say that with absolute certainty, 100% certainty, because if you believe in Jesus, Jesus has given you the, his nature. His, his, the, 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 the Holy Spirit is in you to lead you to do acts of, righteous, acts of righteousness. But you, you might be thinking to yourself, well, actually, I, what I think I really want to do is, is get, get, get even with people. Uh, I, I don't feel like it's my nature to forgive. I don't feel it's my nature to love. And you know what? You know what that is? That's sin in you, lying to you. It's not true, folks. It's not true. Sin is lying to you. It's saying to you, sin is saying to you, I think I would really enjoy getting even with that person. I think that I really don't have it in me to forgive. Um, I, 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 some people are good enough to do this, but I, I don't think I'm one of those. You know, I'm just going to sort of sneak into heaven and live in a corner and just be grateful that I'm not in hell, and um, that's good enough for me. Listen, folks, that is sin lying to you. The fact is that God has given you the ability to forgive. Um, and now, you know, we... we but, but we fall for the lies. I do. We all do. We fall for the lie once in a while from time to time. And, but, 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 they, but what we should be doing is re, re, reminding ourselves of the truth, returning to the truth, reminding ourselves of the truth. And, and as we continue to do that over and over again, that our true nature will become more and more natural to us. It'll come out more and more. In spite of the hateful sin of Joseph's brothers, through the miserable experiences of Joseph in Egypt, you know, this Hebrew family is doing pretty well at the end of the book of Genesis. They're settled with their families on the best farmland in the richest nation on earth. Their brother rules the land. They're under the protection of the might of Egypt. This first book of the Bible ends on a high note, but it's a hollow satisfaction. Egypt is not their home. God provided a home for them in the land of Canaan, but it was currently occupied by the Canaanites and was ravaged by a terrible famine. And so, as you read through the story of God's working in the human race and you come to this point, you ask yourself, is, is this it? Is this the end? That, <clears throat> is this the plan B? That the settling in, that the, the homeland of Canaan just didn't work out, so we'll settle for uh, a permanent you know, temporary permanent pilgrims, permanent temporary residents in in Egypt. <clears throat> but no, will Joseph and his brothers settle for the comforts of Egypt? Will they cling to the ephemeral hope of a home in Canaan? Well, you know, this book of Genesis, of course, is only the beginning. It shows us who God is and how he acts. It introduces us to God's long-term plan. It sets it in motion. In motion, Genesis ends with God's people prospering but not home, because home still awaits them, and that's not an ephemeral hope. Nothing with God is ephemeral, ephemeral, least of all his promises. And what, when we get to this point, what was more certain than the sunlight that shines through these windows on this bright morning is that God would bring his people up from Egypt and plant them in the land of Canaan. And that certainty was not rooted in an assessment of geopolitics or demographic projections or military, military capability. That certainty was based on one thing and one thing only, God's word. And when God says something, it is an ironclad certainty. 
So as we proceed through the Bible, this story unfolds as God brings his people up from Egypt, plants them in their homeland. God raises up a magnificent king, secures a small, peaceful empire in the eastern Mediterranean. And as God inhabits an astonishingly beautiful temple and a glorious kingdom, compared to the world of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it was a new world. God's promises to Abraham came true, but only partly true. Because within all of this glory, within the majestic kingdom, within the temple, within the, the, the glory of the, uh, of the king, sin was still there. The corrosive power of sin still remained. The story continued as the world of David and Solomon collapsed, but eventually from the ruins of that kingdom there arose a remarkable son, beloved of his father, but hated by his brothers. There was no Midianite band to rescue Jesus from death, and he was killed to satisfy the wrath of his vengeful brothers. As Joseph emerged from prison to rule the world, so Jesus emerged from the grave and now rules heaven and earth. As God fulfilled his promises to Abraham, he has fulfilled his promises to us, and now we live in the comfort and presence of God, the Holy Spirit. And just as the fulfillment to Israel was only partial, so it is with us. As we wait for the new world to come, and new heavens, and the new earth. And our own story, for each of us, our own story is but the beginning of an eternal future with God. And that future is a glorious future. So wonderful, it cannot be told in words. And it is secure, because God has promised it. This morning, go forth rejoicing. No matter what comes in the following weeks or years, a glorious home awaits us. Is this too good to be true? Is this vision too good to be true? Is the hope of heaven perhaps wishful thinking? No, my friends, because Jesus has promised these things. And when Jesus says something, it is an ironclad certainty no matter how outlandish it appears. Furthermore, Jesus has promised to stay with us until the end, and he has left us tangible proof of his presence. Today, when you take this bread in your hands and receive this wine in these cups, you hold Jesus. This Jesus, Jesus who promises to hold you through the end of the world, you hold him also. Jesus, who promises to hold you through all of life's trials, through all the unfairnesses and misfortunes, the difficulties and disasters that might come to you. And this Jesus, who promises to bring good out of evil, he invites you to hold him, to taste him, to enjoy him, as he loves and enjoys you. Come, my beloved. Be fed, be satisfied, be loved. Let's pray. Lord God, we know that your word is certain and that your promises are secure, but we forget. Our faith wavers. Every day we return to thinking that we know better than you what will prosper us. We judge your holy word and find it flawed. How treacherous we are, O God, yet still you love us. In spite of all we do to you, you do not abandon us to our wicked and foolish ways. Thank you for caring for us, for patiently bearing with us, for loving us. We praise you for paying the penalty for our sin, yourself on the cross. 
We praise you for never condemning us. We praise you for doing even more than this, for bringing good out of the evil that we and others commit. Help us, Lord, to believe in you, to rest in you, to trust you, to bring good out of evil. Drain the anger and frustration out of us. Make us able to confront evil without acting sinfully ourselves. We believe in you, our God. Help our unbelief. We ask in the name of your precious Son who loves us and died to sanctify us. Amen.